You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody, and happy Valentine's Day. Hopefully, uh, you guys didn't drop the ball and remembered to get your wife or your girlfriend something special if you didn't i think uh, two years ago i got my wife a card and a pack of gum (laughs) so and that's not a joke by the way uh i am horrible with those kind of things i need to be better at that moving forward but hopefully you guys didn't drop the ball and you made your wife happy on a special day But today we're going to talk about whitetails uh, like we do most of the time here. And today's guest is a guy I've known for actually quite a while. His name is Garrett Armstrong. He works for Whitetail Properties. And the first half of this podcast is basically a, a success story. Last year he had one hell of a season. Sounds like he harvested two good mule deer and two good whitetails, and uh, that's what uh, the topic is today. Then the second half of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about purchasing and selling land, and uh, he's a bit of an expert at that kind of thing just because he works for Whitetail Properties, and he works uh, in in that every day, and uh, so we're going to touch base on that today as well. So that's what the podcast is about, really cool podcast we get to talk about animals and then we get to talk about land uh, two of my favorite things so hopefully you guys enjoy that now commercial today exodus trail cameras now these guys have been a partner since day one and uh, they have recently introduced the exodus trek that is a lower price point camera it retails for 145 dollars and let me just run through some of the uh, specs real quick 0.7 trigger speed 0.7 second trigger speed uh, a 55 foot detection distance a 50 foot no glow flash range 20,000 plus images expected from eight double a lithium batteries and they have a a video mode that goes 720 or 1080 as well Uh, they have a two six eight twelve photo modes as far as megapixels are concerned Uh, they have the cable lock and the best part is uh, and something that we've come accustomed to be used to uh, that made no sense but you guys know what i'm saying Exodus has the five-year no BS warranty and the 50% off theft and damage replacement policy. You guys need to go to ExodusOutdoorGear.com right now. Check out the new Trek 
buy 17,000 of them. That'd be, that's probably too much, but I think seven or eight of them might, might cover your area. And with the nine finger Chronicles discount that is going from 145 to $20 off by entering the discount code nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. And you're going to receive $20 off your purchase of a trail camera. And, uh, so yeah, go check out exodusoutdoorgear.com and all the trail cameras that they uh, that they produce. So I think that's it, guys. We are going to get this podcast this podcast kicked off in a major way. Here is today's, I guess, Hunter Profile Success Story podcast with Garrett Armstrong of Whitetail Properties. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Garrett Armstrong. How you doing today, man? Good, Dan. How are you? I can't complain. You know, if I was in your if I was in your shoes, I would be pretty happy too because just from looking at social media, it sounds like you had one hell of a season this year. You know what? I, I did. I was really fortunate to be in the the right place, I guess, at the right time a number of times. So not every season, you know, goes as planned and it goes as good as it does. But I think if you put in the the time and the effort every once in a while, it does definitely pay off. So let's talk a little bit about your, your season. I know we're kind of jumping right into it, but we're going to, we're going to talk like the second half of this podcast about what you do for a living and uh, why that's important to this particular podcast. But 2017, you said, great year for, for you and your hunting season. Where did you start off at? So I actually started off uh, in southern Saskatchewan on a mule deer hunt. Um, and this is actually a hunt I've done with a really, really good friend of mine um, and client. Uh, this is our third year. And what's unique about this is we actually, uh, we had, through a kind of some mutual friends, we had gotten in contact. Uh, with a gentleman that that manages uh, an Indian reservation um, in southern Saskatchewan, because typically uh, most non-alien and non-residents cannot hunt in southern Saskatchewan with archery or with firearms. But through a reserve hunt, it's a little bit different. Um, And we actually kind of coordinated that hunt three years ago. We've had three unbelievable hunts. Uh, The first year I killed a typical mule deer that grows just over 200 inches Whoa. last year my buddy killed one a beautiful four by four with eye guards like a, a high 180s deer uh and then the third year in the hunt i killed a, a really respectable uh buck on the last day had kind of some cool points and a nice drop time so it, it's been an awesome hunt and the nice thing about it is it's in august so it's, it's so much earlier, like if you've got antelope hunts or elk hunts or any other early season mule deer hunts, like this is kind of prior to uh, those hunts, and it's always a nice way to kind of open up the season with a nice early hunt. Oh, heck yes. Now, obviously August means velvet, so all of the all the bucks that you shot ended up being velvet in velvet? Yeah, yep, all, all velvet, uh, and they're just kind of at that kind of critical phase where they were just starting to lose some of the velvet. We'd see bachelor groups that were, you know, 80% velvet, 20% hard horn. So it's right on that ragged edge. You just never know what you're going to get into. Um, but in the last three years, all the deer that we've been able to get shots at and, and have taken have all been velvet, which is cool too, because 
you know, being from the Midwest, I mean, you don't get a chance to hunt whitetails in velvet. You know, you've right. got to travel west to do that. Right, right. So what is this terrain like in southern Saskatchewan where you were hunting? So it's, I, I would I would call it all prairie grasslands. Um, there's some agriculture. Uh, lots of different grains are grown, but the area specifically that we hunted was actually near a national grasslands park and it is literally just miles and miles and miles of just little coolies and little draws but just grassy hillsides i mean it's extremely open country this is we spend 90 percent of our time behind binoculars and spotting scopes trying to find the deer 10 percent of the time you're actually hunting so it's 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 definitely finding a, a needle in a haystack right so is this uh your typical glass them wait for them to bed stalk them type of hunt you know we do uh, that tactic definitely does work which the, the challenge with with that is that, like it's hard to pattern these deer that the country's so open and because there's not like this this food source where you can pattern them from from exactly food to exactly bedding yeah I mean, they're, they're kind of just, it's almost, I'd almost describe it as they're just grazing because there's, there's great native browse, you know, in, in all those native grasses and it's, it's, yeah, it's trying to find them in their beds, but at that time of the year, the bucks are bachelor grouped up and you have anywhere from six to 12 bucks bedded together in a group. I mean, it makes for really, really hard stalking <laughs> conditions. So, and that's what's so fun about it is it's great seeing, you know, the, being able to see the game all day long while you're hunting and half time there's bucks you'd want to go after but you can't because the wind's not right or they're not bedded in the right position or you've got six other year and a half old bucks to get by before you get close enough to shoot them so it's it, it's as much as it's fun and challenging it can also be really frustrating because you can see them and you just can't do anything about it so what are what's the tactic then like blinds or is there another tactic that you're using you know the, i guess the tactic that, that we've been, you know, really successful with is, is, is really just getting, getting as close to them as the terrain or the wind or the cover will allow and, and, and just kind of letting them get up on a, out of their bed and make their next move. You know, in a lot of the little coolies and draw they bed in, it's, it's either, let's say they're going north or south along that drainage and we're going to be on one side of them or the other in Sometimes they come our way, you know, with the with a wind in our face. Other times they go the other direction, and then it's you kind of regroup and, you know, come up with another plan, or you may run out of daylight and have to start the whole process over the next day. But it's it's trying to get inside of that, you know, 150, 200 yard kind of circle, if you will, where you're close and you can predict where they're going, but you're not so close that you're that you're bumping them. We, we kind of make them make the next move before we kind of close that distance and pursue them right so i i can see how that kind that style of hunting would be very frustrating if you know they don't read the script and come your way or you know the wind shifts and busts every deer in the coulee out oh yeah and i and i mean that has happened so many times i mean the the, the quality of deer that we've kind of been on and gotten close to that we haven't you know been able to present a shot on i mean for every one we've taken you know there's there's 
you know six or seven <laughs> little stories of the of the big one that of, of the big one that got away but it, it's really fun and it's I, I like that anything i can get on the ground and move around and spot and stalk you really feel like you're in the hunt all day long and as much as i love hunting whitetails out of a tree or a blind it's like with whitetails it's like am i in the exact perfect spot right. today right. for this deer you know and a lot of times i, I you kind of find yourself, you kind of second guess yourself a little bit. And am I in the right tree? Should I have been on that side of the farm? Should I have been on a different farm? Where with this, at least you've got eyes on deer all day long. Yeah. And it's kind of up to you to kind of keep changing your strategy to, to get close. Right. Right. Is this some, is this the, something that, you know, as long as they have you, you know, invite you to come, you're going to go on this, on this particular hunt. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so good. Um, and they take a, a very very limited number of guys a year and somehow i just got lucky enough to get on that short list so yes it's kind of a, a wow. standing invitation and we're gonna we're gonna keep going until until we can perfect perfect all right next stop what south dakota um yeah yeah a little little south dakota a little western south dakota um we hunt uh they kind of divide the state in East River deer or West River deer. Uh, the river being the, the Missouri River, so we hunt we hunt West River. It's still kind of considered a, a prairie deer tag where we hunt, but it's it's west of Missouri. And uh, again, it's just man, just some really cool like dark timber and bluffs and draws and some alfalfa fields. And uh, South Dakota is not known for like really really large mule deer. Um, I, I, you know, a top end deer kind of in our areas, 170, 180 inches, but it's just such a cool hunt. I think South Dakota is one of my favorite states to hunt in yeah. general, you know, easy to get tags over the counter, very, you know, pro archery and pro hunting state. Um, they just kind of really rolled the red carpet out for you. And, and we've hunted there for years and years, whether it be hunting turkeys in the spring for Merriam's or mule deer and, and actually in the last couple of years the whitetail hunting has actually gotten a lot better um yeah. seeing some really good quality bucks so that's always kind of a nice bonus too you just never know what you're going to run into absolutely i hear a lot of that uh especially i guess both dakotas you hear a lot that the 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 whitetail uh population and quality are seem to be getting better as time goes on yeah, I think it's a real sleeper. I think the next couple of years could produce just some real, really, really cool deer. Yeah. Um, just some of the some of the photos. You know, you bump into guys at gas station and you're picking something up at Shields, and you're looking at the pictures. Or guys showing pictures on their phone. I mean, they're they're killing some really top end whitetails right now. Right. It's it's exciting. Right. So then, any different uh, style of strategy from this mule deer hunt compared to the Saskatchewan mule deer hunt? You know what? Yeah, and that's a that's a really good question. Uh, the 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 size of the property we hunt in South Dakota is much much smaller. In fact, it's it's only a couple thousand acres. Uh, it's it's a couple thousand in the right spot. Um, and, and really, on that is that is kind of ground blind ambush out on out on fields. Okay. Uh, we're letting them get off the fields bed. We leave them alone in their beds. Just let them get comfortable. They're fairly predictable if, as long as the weather and wind stays the same. What we found on this particular you know, place is where they leave the field, eight times out of ten they're going to come back in the exact same spot. 
uh, if they're unmolested in their beds. Yeah. So really, we're just we're just glassing in the morning, watch them leave the field. We do a lot of afternoon hunts, mostly scouting in the morning, hunting in the afternoon, uh, and just trying to just intersect them as they come back to food. So this is this is more of your typical bed transition area food repeat type of pattern that these deer are on yeah in in on this particular farm like the food is literally planted right up to the edge of the jaws and the brakes so these deer in some cases they may only be bedded 50 60 100 yards off the food so they are right there like if you you'd walk to the edge of the field and look over the draw i mean you've got deer right below you like right now so they're really sensitive to pressure. So again, we kind of have to, there's always like that, that magical spot, the X where you're like, man, if I could sit there, we'd kill him every time. Yeah. But like the X typically rarely produces the right conditions of the right wind where you actually can be there to kill him. So we're always sitting way off the X being a little bit conservative, letting them come out and feed and, and trying to, use structure and hay bales and a few other things to kind of manipulate their movement, how they move through the field to give us that kind of that archery close shot. Nice. So it's fun. It's, it's totally different hunt than that Saskatchewan hunt. That Saskatchewan hunt is you're running and gunning all day where South Dakota for us is kind of more like real strategic, you know, here's where we sit, here's where they sit, here's where they cross. And, and you're just really just sitting and waiting a little bit more, more, more you know, whitetail tactics, I guess on these mules are, Right. Absolutely. So in that scenario, then you're not spending all day or all afternoon in the blind. You're getting in there, you know, just a little bit before they start to move. Or are you in there quite a, you know, quite a good time frame before, you know, they start to move? You know what? We try to get in there fairly early just because they are bedded so close to the food. And, and there's a pretty high gear density that, I mean, it's not uncommon for these deer, especially as you get into like mid-October. The season, the season typically opens the last couple of days of September, um, and sometimes we go out at the beginning of the season. Sometimes we wait and kind of go out more mid-October when whitetail hunting at home is not really worth it. You know, kind of that October lull. Right. It doesn't affect those mule deer because they're still just bed to feed, bed to feed. Right. So we've hunted them in October, November, December. And really at any time, sometimes, I mean, you could have 15, 20 deer in the field by one o'clock in the afternoon. Right. These are really big, deep fields. They're way off the road. They feel really comfortable in the field early. And again, they bed so close to it. So, you know, it's a scout in the morning. They get off the field. You kind of regroup, maybe grab a, a late breakfast, early lunch. And then, yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to get in that blind and, and be there before any movement starts. Nice. So again, another successful hunt uh, in South Dakota. Now, Iowa. Now, are you originally from Iowa? I forget. No, no, my wife's from Iowa. I'm. I grew up in Michigan. Okay, all right. So yep. you guys, you guys live in Iowa, and so now you're a resident of Iowa. How long have you lived in Iowa? Uh, this will be our third year. Okay, third year. All right. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, isn't it nice to get to hunt Iowa every year now? It's a dream. <laughs> it, it, it really is. I, I'll tell you what. I mean, this is this has always been my favorite state, and, and I was living here about 12, 13 years ago for uh, you know another career, and that's where I met my wife, and 
we kind of moved around between Michigan and New York, but our plan was always to come back to Iowa for multiple reasons, be close to family, uh, kind of more of a, you know, kind of more of a rural, you know, culture and, and, and lifestyle. But then obviously there's always that added care of the best way to hunting in the country. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. fill us in on your whitetail season here. You know what? I, I think just this being kind of my third year, it's just, it's taken a little bit of time to kind of, you know, get access to farms, find the right farms, kind of dial them in, get them set up the way you, you need them to, to, to be set up to really be successful. And it's kind of been a, a two year process. And, and finally, I really felt good about the, the ground I had access to this year and, you know, went into the season with a plan where, you know, there's seasons that when I was kind of scrambling and kind of hunting, kind of scouting all at the same time. Uh, this year was just a little bit different. Just had some, had some farms really dialed in and had some really good deer on the go and kind of had a plan with, with what I needed to do. And, uh, man, just executed on it. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I mean, one of the things I've really gotten into and it's, it's been fairly addicting and maybe even a little bit controversial is the, the use of cellular based trail cameras. Oh yeah. And, and having like real time Intel yeah. on a, you know, daily, hourly, almost minute basis right. that uh, really helps making decisions on where to be and, and when and why so much easier. So um, that's, that's really helped for sure, you know, because you're not wasting time in, in farms that, you know, aren't active right now or deer that aren't moving in daylight. So, right. uh, or have the caliber. That and, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's weird how one year one farm will have you know two or three five or six year olds on it you know you know they make it through the season and you're excited about this year and that was my case this year and those farms that had great deer on it and i know those deer lived because they made it through the season and guys were picking up their sheds just were gone this year in fact they didn't show up on those farms again until uh, this month till february so your plans can change where I thought that farm was going to be my go-to farm. I barely hunted that farm. So it's do you just, think, uh, it just, it just changes all the time. Yeah. Do you think any of that had to do with crop rotation? Absolutely. Okay. For sure. Crop rotation and, and also some, uh, some of the farm and farms around it when it, uh, this is the first year in a, in a CRP program and the, the CP 42, which is the pollinator program that was really pushed heavily the last few years by the USDA and the local FSA offices here in Iowa. So, so yeah, I mean, changing food sources, that crop rotation from corn to beans absolutely moves those deer around. Yeah. That's something I've definitely been thinking about, uh, a lot lately because this year, the farm my main farm that i hunt was absolutely loaded and last year it wasn't and i have a feeling that this upcoming year it won't be either there'll be your stay at home bucks that call it home but it's not going to be a sponge like it typically is when let's say the corn is in for some reason when the corn yeah. is in on this farm it just it holds more deer for some reason so Oh. Well, it, it wouldn't it be cool if we could convince the the tenant or the landowner <laughs> to to have the farm? If you know, if there's a hundred tillable acres, like, hey, let's do fifty fifty soybeans, fifty corns, and then rotate that every year. Right. But obviously, that makes them a lot less efficient. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, 
they're not going to they're not going to sign up for that plan but i think that would help us right I mean, yeah. that would keep more of those same deer there consistently year right. after year if we're going to be 100% selfish i think that would be a good move and <laughs> yeah. he has to come out of the field you know instead of driving one straight line while he plants he has to come back you know change equipment change seed and then come back and plant the next you know just not very mm-hmm. not very user friendly but hey man it's all about big bucks that's right that's right. Which which most most landowners and, and farmers don't care a whole lot about, but <laughs> exactly. for us, right? I mean, that's, exactly. That's the holy grail. So back, you know, we kind of got off subject there, but uh, talk yeah. to me a little yeah. bit about how the whitetail went. Uh, whitetail was whitetail was really good. I, I don't personally hunt much in October at all. Um, I, I guess if cameras are showing some some good bucks moving early. Um, I'll maybe hunt early, but my wife doesn't join a bow hunt, but she is a fair weather hunter. Gotcha. So if we hunt, it's usually I hunt with her, you know, the, the first four, five, six days of October. Cause sometimes we can get those real nice 70 degree days, you know, and it, you know, there's a chance you get one on their, on, on their feet early and, and she just enjoys being in a tree that time of year. So we kind of, we kind of dabble around a little bit early, but I, I typically just wait until that first really good cold front that hits that that third or fourth week of october it's kind of weather dependent on when i put in some time but hunted a little bit in october um november uh, again around work and and kind of my schedule hunted a a fair bit um and it really all came together i shot a nice deer uh, actually on a farm just about a less than a mile from my house uh just kind of essentially across the road on uh, november 9th so I'd actually gotten back from South Dakota. I killed a South Dakota mule deer on November 6th. I was home on the 8th. Wind was right to hunt a, a set I hadn't been in all year. Jumped in the tree on the 9th and had a real nice deer shot by about uh, 8.30 in the morning. Nice, nice. Well, that's the crazy thing, though, man. Like, now, you're, now your rut's kind of over. Uh, are, you a, are you a landowner? Uh, this year, I do not have a landowner tag. Okay. Uh, next year, I will have that coveted third tag. Nice. Okay. So, for me, like, I love tagging, like, I love shooting a buck, but, like, this year and last year, I was only in my tree stand for four days out of, like, 16 days that I set aside, and then the rest of the time, you're like, well, man, now I got to go back home and I got to be a dad again. And what kind of fun is that? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of bittersweet, but I, I kind of found myself in that same position. It's like November 9th, there's still so much good movement, so much good rut left. Yeah. But you, you, you're kind of done, right? You're kind of, you're kind of benched at that point until what was it? January 10th or December 10th. Like, like basically, you know, muzzleloader season right. when that started. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, having that that third wild card landowner tag definitely helps kind of extend that season a little bit. That's for sure. Was this uh, a buck, the one that you shot with your bow, one that you'd been watching all summer or from previous years? You know what? Yeah, it, it was it was a deer I've been watching this summer. Um, in fact, again, this farm's so close to the house. Like, I mean, I've got trail camera pictures of them in my yard. I mean, nice. it's, this deer was a deer I I, I knew quite a bit. Um, but it really wasn't, it wasn't kind of like what I wanted my target buck to be it kind of as we go back to the earlier part of the conversation where these, these deer are moving based on crop rotation and deer that are there one year and aren't the next. 
there's some really, really top end deer um, that didn't show up until late. And then actually uh, a, a deer I was hunting last year, uh, big non-typical, um, I picked up his right side shed in early January last year, uh, never found his left side, uh, but ended up, ended up finding him dead on a showing. So I was mm-hmm. showing some clients a farm across the street from where I hunt and uh, actually found him uh, in early March. So I confirmed his death and man, I was really hoping to see what he would turn into this year. So that was a, that was kind of a devastating blow, you know, going into a, another season yeah. thinking I'm going to have a real good crack at a plus 200 inch deer, which is so rare to begin with. And then he, uh, he makes it through gun season, makes it through all the seasons and then probably ends up succumbing to some coyotes or something late season. Right. Right. One of, one of a hundred different things that it could be. So absolutely. Yeah. Yep. All They've right. got such a tough life, man, for them to yeah. make it to, the five or six years old is so tough in the first place. Right. Absolutely. I have a, I have a couple bucks. I, I often think of, they don't, they show up on trail cameras one or two times throughout the whole summer. And then they disappear for the entire year. I don't get any hard horn pictures of them. And then they show back up when I go and put my mineral out and put my trail cameras back up to, you know, for the velvet. And I just wonder where do these deer go? How the hell do they survive the high gun pressure? The, I mean, this mm-hmm. winter in Iowa has been ridiculously cold. Uh, so they yep. they got to be tough to to just make it. Yeah, I mean, do you think they're do you think they're moving farms? Do you think they're 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 ranging a, a mile, mile and a half away? I mean, is there some yeah. farms that are nearby that don't get pressured that have great cover? I mean, where do you, where do you think these deer are going? Yeah, I have no idea, man. Uh, I, you know, obviously I hunt in a, in a, the farm that I hunt on is in a decent neighborhood with some management, uh, in a couple directions, but I just think that to the North is really big chunk of timber. And I think that when it gets pushed for shotgun season and when the bow hunters, uh, come in there and, you know, everything else, I think they just have a ton of escape routes and this year with the good acorn crop and yeah we just recently got a lot of snow but but they've had enough to eat where i have a feeling his cover and his food just aren't that far apart and he doesn't move he lives in a very small core area Mm -hmm. that i unfortunately don't have permission to get to so sure so it's cool though to see him pop up every every so often and see how his uh, antler growth does. I mean, this is like the fifth year I've seen him and he's uh, last year was his biggest year. And now it seems like he's going downhill just a little bit, but I don't know. It's fun to watch. Yeah. It's exciting when they just all of a sudden show up right. after not having a picture of him for five months. Like Absolutely. Damn. There yeah. he is. Absolutely. He made it. He's alive. So you got, so you, it's almost like four, two deer in four days uh between uh south dakota and iowa so that probably made you happy then it was it turned into muzzleloader season and you got another another buck in iowa i did i did yeah yeah hunted uh hunted my lease pretty hard and and i think the the mistake that was made there was i i, I thought i had an arrangement to, to keep food on with a with a landowner 
harvest came, they just rolled right through the combines on everything. And, and the farm really didn't have a ton of food on it, but I've got really, really great cover. Yeah. Um, so I was holding a bunch of deer, um, and, and I was able to kind of just sit back. I've got a elevated hay bale blind on a terrace and I've got really good visibility and, and essentially my setup there works on, on pretty much all prevailing winds, anything westerly, northerly or northwesterly. I mean, I'm invincible, which, you know, typically late season is the majority of our winds. Right. So I hunted that quite a bit and, and had some close calls, you know, had some really good bucks that were just, you know, probably out of the, my effective range with the muzzle loader and, and just knew I could get a closer shot and hunted, uh, hunted that piece hard and passed up a, I don't know, I've, I've got to find a shed, but based on the pictures I've got on me, like a mid 160s nine pointer, like really good mass, Whoa. good time length, just a super pretty deer. Uh, I think he's a five-year-old based on some other pictures I have of him. Um, and almost, almost shot him, but kind of let him roll. And then, uh, the day, I guess it had been the day after Christmas, so the 26th, uh, we were planning to leave the 27th to go visit some family down in Florida. So we're flying out early out of Des Moines. The weather was awesome on 26th. Went to the same farm that I killed my deer during bow season in, uh, and there was a really nice eight point there with like kind of a cool sticker off his uh, right G2 base. And literally that was the first antler deer that hit the field on the 26th and it was like five degrees windy cold i mean i just knew they were going to feed heavily and he rolled out to a, a pick bean field and uh shot him with a muzzle loader at like 100 yards so and that, that was actually the first year i've ever killed with a gun all my every big game hunt i've ever done has always been archery i mean i, I love archery but uh wanted to have that that i guess that second tag and that second opportunity here in iowa so so started muzzle loader hunting this year Right. I always buy that muzzleloader tag, but I think the rule is you can use archery equipment for that late season hunt, or I think the yeah. the rule states primitive weapon, whatever, you know, whatever falls under that category. But uh, that, a muzzleloader has always interested me. Um, I, I feel like in the next couple years, as my kids get a little older and my wife needs less help at home, I'll be able to take advantage more of that late season hunting window. And a, mm-hmm. a, a muzzle loader is definitely on my list. Yeah, it's, it's cool. I mean, it, I mean, I, sh- I, you know, I bought it this summer, shot it all summer, really try to familiarize myself with it. Cause it's, I mean, it's a, it's a different animal, you know, yeah. and just trying to understand its capabilities. But, it was good, and, and I think sometimes some farms set up really well for late season, even archery hunting. The farms I have don't. It, it just it wouldn't allow me to, to be where I needed to be, you know, and even to sit long enough, especially as it's cold of a winter as we've had. I mean, and it's it's tough to be an effective bow hunter when it's five degrees with wind chills that are, you know, negative numbers. But to kind of be able to sit back with a, with a muzzleloader kind of gives you some other opportunities. So it was it was fun. Absolutely. Well, that's one hell of a season, my friend. I, I think that uh, now next year, do you have the same? Do you have the same hunts, or do you have different hunts lined up for the 2018 season? You know, same same hunts, um, same hunts for for yeah for for whitetails and, and mule deer uh, with South Dakota and Saskatchewan. I think I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to maybe slip an elk hunt in there in September. Nice. Um, 
but that's not confirmed yet. I've, I've been trying to apply for a, like a limited entry Montana um, elk tag, which, you know, I've got some points now and I may draw that. And if I don't draw that, um, I may just go to Colorado, got some, some access there and try to make it happen. The nice thing about Colorado is it's over the counter where we're going to go, kind of a yeah. general tag. and yep. You go every year. Yep. So. That's my goal. I got to yeah. get a general Colorado tag. I got a, a buddy who lives out there who is uh, last year just didn't happen because of the uh, my my youngest child being born on September 22nd. And I just couldn't okay. step away from that. But this year, man, nope. that's fingers crossed. I'm going to there Colorado go. for my second ever elk hunt. And I'm Jack, dude. I But I'm fat right now. So I got to lose some weight and get back in shape. Well, it's good motivation. Absolutely, I'll tell you what. That's probably one of that's that's probably one of the most fun hunts you can ever have is a is a rut elk hunt when right. they're just screaming and tearing up the mountain. I mean, man, is that exciting? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the second half of this podcast, I want to talk a little bit about what it is you do for a living and get into some of the details of that. But why don't you let everybody know what it is that you do for a living? Yeah, so I work for, uh, I'm an independent agent or, or land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate. Uh, and, and Whitetail Properties, that, uh, probably most of your listeners have, have seen the TV show, you know, on, on uh, the Sportsless Channel. Uh, that kind of highlights properties and land management and, and general QDM and just all things that, that come with land ownership. Um, so we're really well known on the TV show, but we're actually a, a real estate brokerage that's based in, I think we're up to like 28 states right now. Um, and we've got, you know, well over 200, uh, independent land specialists or, or, or agents that are, that are working with clients to, to buy and to sell land. Okay. So we really specialize. We got started uh, specializing in a real niche of, of just recreational, kind of recreational hunting properties. And that's expanded over into not only the rec ground, but also the highly productive tillable ground as well. But the one thing you won't ever see us do is we don't sell commercial properties. Uh, we don't really sell a lot of residential properties unless it's a, a home on an acreage, you know, right. 10, 20, 30, 40 acres. We really try to just be the best. At just selling raw land in, in larger acreages. Right. Okay. So I just, a guilty pleasure of mine uh, is whether, you know, I can't sleep at night or, you know, like after this podcast, I'm going to have about 30 minutes before I have to go get the kids from daycare that if I don't have anything mm-hmm. else to do, I might pull up whitetail properties and I might start flipping through some of those properties and, and basically daydream about owning uh, a, a really good piece of property someday. So with that said, my my base on this podcast is a lot of DIY, hardcore bow hunters who um, hunt a lot of public land. But them, just like me, it's always been a dream of owning a piece of property that you can call your own someday. Now, for the guy out there who, as soon as they heard you say real estate agent for, you know, whitetail properties, the first thought in their head was, I'm never going to own uh, a piece of property. Tell tell them why they're wrong. Well, I mean, 
land ownership is is extremely attainable and I, and I think sometimes they don't maybe some of your listeners and people in general just don't understand the process um, or even the the type of farm that helps them get to their first piece of ownership so as a, as a person as a perfect example uh, if you were to buy a, a 40 a track of all timber so there's not going to be a lot of income on that property so from a lender's perspective the lender's going to need you know, more money down, which can be a barrier to entry because we all have mortgages and bills and families and all this other stuff going on. And, and sometimes that, you know, extra disposable income to put in the form of a down payment on a farm can be tough on, let's say, a 100% timber track. But if you could find what we call like a combination farm, which is great for, for archers and hunters, you know, where it's got a, a mix of timber and a mix of agriculture. So now you've got an income producing component lenders like the fact that there's income on the farm you now have less of a down payment again it depends on the lender you deal with and the, the products they offer but typically it's a lower down payment not to mention the farm is helping you essentially pay that mortgage so the farm is paying for itself or starting to pay for itself right. so it actually makes that actual that that monthly that monthly mortgage much much less um, not to mention, at least in Iowa, and I can't speak for, you know, all states where your listeners are from, but in Iowa, we're, we're coming out of, you know, two or three years of, of kind of a uh, recession and kind of a depressed land market. It's starting to really appreciate again. And, and if you look at that 100-year cycle of land appreciation in Iowa, um, we, we've come out of the dip. We're going to have anywhere from four to, to seven years of pretty rapid appreciation. So it's a good time right now to make that investment. Because if you ever want to sell that farm and, and, and roll into a bigger farm or just get out of the land ownership in general, then you've got a real tangible asset there that's helped pay for itself along the way. Not to mention you get all the extra value um, out of out of just the enjoyment and, and the recreational aspects of the farm. Right. I know this is kind of a vague question, but what drives land prices like whenever whenever you see a farm for sale you see this is the price per acre what drives that price mm -hmm. um i i think i think probably three different factors uh one is going to be especially if it is a combination farm or a tillable farm it's going to be the quality or the productivity of the soils um so you know a farm let's say and not, not picking on any part of the state but typically the soil quality in the southern third of the state isn't as high as the central part of the state or especially the northern part of the state so you know the price breaker is going to differ just based on the productivity and, and what that farm or what that soil will yield in terms of crops so there's a it's called a csr2 rating it's a corn suitability rating that this that iowa state university came up with and it's a it's essentially a measurement or a, a gauge where we can look at a farm in clark county versus a farm in Buena Vista County and come up with a value and a, and a difference in value based on the soils. So that's going to be one driving factor. Um, another driving factor is really going to be just supply and demand. I mean, that's that's always going to affect the prices. Um, you get in some of these neighborhood areas where it's been highly, highly managed and all of the neighbors are on the same page and they're letting three and four-year-olds pass and there's a really, really old, you know, mature deer age structure and the genetics are phenomenal. That same farm with the same dynamics five miles away may be $500 less an acre. But, you're, but there's a premium just based on its location 
in the demand to be in that neighborhood for guys that want to really manage farms and, and have top end deer. So that's a that's a factor. And then I think another factor that changes the, the price of land is kind of where the the the, the CSR two like the the soil productivity is kind of a way that we put a, a cost approach on the value of land. Another way that we income approach we look at the total annual return what that farm produces in terms of of, of of income or dollars per year and then there could be a multiple applied to that so uh, a, a farm you know maybe of so many acres and a three percent return isn't going to be worth as much as a farm of the same size that has a three and a half percent or a three and three quarter percent return so there's fewer of those farms there's not as much supply uh, investors, as an example, will, will pay more for a farm that has a higher return than one that's got a lower return. So I think those are kind of the three main factors that, that drive or change the value of land in Iowa. Okay. So, and here's another thing that I, I noticed. Why, is, and this is a, a question that I have because I'm not educated on this, you know, buying and selling land at all, but why is the price per acre for, let's say, a 20 a 20 acre farm greater than let's say a 350 acre farm. Well, I, I think there's, there's, there's always a pricing strategy involved depending on no matter what size farm is going to hit the market. I think there's going to be, there's, there is greater demand for the, for the smaller tracks, be it a, a 20, a 40 or an 80. And there's a lot more buyers in that pool that can afford a 20, 40, or an 80. So sometimes there's a bit of a premium put on those smaller tracks. As you get into the bigger tracks, you mentioned like a 320, the amount of buyers that can afford a 320 are much, much smaller, so there's not as much competition. Typically the sellers are, are going to be a little bit more conservative in, in the way that they price that farm. But uh, again, the, the price that you'll see on you know, our website or any of the land websites, just like anything, I mean, there's always lots of negotiation that goes into it, and what you see online isn't necessarily always what the farm sells for. Gotcha. You know, it could it, it could sell for. I mean, I've seen some farms sell, especially if they're overpriced, but it could be it could sell for 15 or 20 percent less than list. I think that's a rare occasion. I think somewhere in that five to 10 percent off of what you see as list is is definitely more common. Okay, so. Let's say something happens. I, I I I think it's time where I need to start looking to to buy mm-hmm. buying some property. What are some of the first things that uh, a potential buyer needs to do before he can actually go through and say, "I want to put an offer in on this piece of property"? Okay, I, I, there isn't necessarily like a set checklist of what you you need to do, but what I think is best to be prepared is the first thing you want to do is, is meet with a lender or multiple lenders and, and find out what kind of, what kind of lending products they offer, what the interest rate is, what the terms, you know, tell them, Hey, I want to buy a, a recreational piece of land. This is what my budget is. You know, what can you do for me in terms of a, you know, an agricultural or a rural uh, mortgage or loan kind of get those ducks in a row, kind of almost like you would when you buy a home. Sometimes you kind of get pre-qualified ahead of right. time, even though you haven't found the house you want to buy, but you've kind of got everything. You've supplied all your financial documents to your lender. Your lender knows, yeah, hey, I can I can extend a, a half a million line 
to this, you know, to this buyer or, or whatever it is, but kind of get that piece in line so that way you can actually technically start shopping inside of your budget. And then it, when you do write that offer and the fact that you're already pre-qualified at that point, that sends a really strong message to the seller like, hey, this, this offer is legit. You know, this isn't, hey, I'm going to send you an offer. And then there's all these different contingencies of, well, now I got to go talk to a lender. I want to see if I can get financed. I want to see if I can get a loan. Um, it, it really helps, again, with that negotiation point, especially if they're if the farm's for sale at a price that you may not feel comfortable with or you really want to offer them less. Being pre-qualified and having a lender in your pocket ready to go really helps in negotiation. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then once that happens, they call you, right? Yeah, man. Absolutely. (laughs) And we go, we go, we go shopping, we go find them a farm. Nice. Nice. So is there, is there any, uh, anything else that uh, a potential buyer needs to think about, um, whether it's before they call you or, you know, trying to figure out what kind of ground because you know and let's just keep the the conversation to Iowa right now mm-hmm. because that's where we're both from but when it comes to shopping for ground is there is there something that buyers need to be aware of when you know before they just jump in and say I want that one I think it's like any major purchase and, and, and buying land, you know, ranks as, as one of the, that probably one of the most significant purchases that most people make throughout their life. I mean, probably just second to, to buying their home. And, and sometimes, you know, land purchase is actually of more value than sometimes a residence. So it's a, it's a significant, um, significant purchase. I, the one thing that I always recommend is, you know, from a buyer's perspective is, is kind of get to know the the agents, you know, and, and White Top Properties is obviously, the, I'd say the at least in Iowa the biggest recreational brokerage around, and, and that's the case in most states too. But you know, there's some other really good agents. I, I would meet all the agents. I'd kind of almost you know grab a coffee with them, take them for lunch, whatever it may be. Kind of understand their approach, and and I think it's really important that you have a good solid rapport with your agent because you're gonna you're gonna kind of entrust in that agent that. He's going to do a lot of the due diligence, do a lot of the research, dig into the details of the farm and be able to come to you and say, all right, Dan, I found you three farms that meet your criteria. He's really going to, he or she's going to really run down every little aspect of that farm income, you know, talking about the neighbors, are there easements, are there any other encumbrances, are there leases, tenants? I mean, there's, there's a lot of different factors that kind of go in that, that can be different from farm to farm. So it's, I think it's really important to have that relationship, spell out exactly what you're looking for, let that agent ask you questions, kind of interview, kind of have him or her better understand exactly what it is you're looking for so we can go to work and, and try to find you that, that perfect farm. Right. Okay. Now, a lot of people talk about buying the property, buying the property, but one thing I have never heard people talk about is now it's time for me to maybe cash in on on this investment and snowball it into a bigger farm or a different farm or a mm-hmm. better farm or whatever what what kind of things do a property seller need to know before i guess saying all right now it's time to sell um, you know i think the the 
the biggest thing that, especially on your first farm, when you go to sell your first farm, and let's say you're rolling from a, an 80 and you want to buy a 120 or a 160, uh, the biggest thing is going to be tax. Um, and that can kind of sneak up on some people, whether it be, you know, a short-term capital gain or, or just a capital gain, uh, that sale can be taxed, you know, quite heavily. So the nice thing is, is uh, through our IRS code uh, 1031, you're actually able to defer the taxes from the sale of one property, one piece of real estate into another. So essentially you're just, the taxes never go away, but you're just kicking the tax can down the road, gotcha. which again can be extremely helpful. Um, so, you know, meeting with your agent, understanding that process and the advantages and how you do that. I mean, it's a wonderful tool um, through the IRS, your financial planner or your CPA would know all about it. There's, uh, there's people that specialize just in doing 1031 exchanges, not only in Iowa, but anywhere across the country, they're called qualified intermediaries. These are great resources that help you understand that process. But I would say having a, a handle on the taxes or tax implications of that sale is probably the one thing that most sellers aren't prepared for initially. And that's where their agents can really help educate them on that and get them prepped. Gotcha. What are what are other things like I got a buddy who is getting ready to sell uh, a farm with that sits on well it's a house that sits on 20 acres of timber and uh, mm-hmm. I've I've hunted it the last two years and every once in a while a big buck will come through I actually missed a booner on there th- two or three years ago and oh. uh, yeah uh, but how important is it for someone to maybe keep track of those trail camera pictures and keep, you know, maybe go out and take some pictures of some rubs or some scrapes or some well-used trails. Does, does any of that information help in the selling of a farm? Yeah, that, that helps tremendously. Um, especially like that history, like, like you said, the history of trail cameras, uh, camera pictures, you know, any deer that have been taken on the, on the farm, whether it be by the family or friends, having good pictures of those. Heck, even bass or crappie that have been caught out of the farm pond. Like, all those little assets kind of help us paint a picture of what this farm has produced and can produce. You know, even taking great photos, you know, in, in fall colors. Because sometimes, like this time of year, we may get a new listing and unfortunately, the farm is going to probably show the worst right now. You know, snow on the ground, everything's gray, no leaves, everything's beat down. I mean, we still take the pictures and we take great pictures and do the best we can. But I, I love getting a listing in, in August or September where I can take some just dynamite drone photos or, you know, we got full color coming and, and we can keep updating those photos. So, yeah, any assets like that, that that you have in your collection or that are timely. And if you're thinking in the next year or two, you're going to sell, make a file and just start pouring that stuff into the file. Pictures of rubs, pictures of scrapes. I mean, all that stuff really does sell farms. Okay, cool. Now kind of going backwards, back to buying, buying land again. What's, what's the first step for someone who has the dream of buying a property but hasn't taken any step towards that yet. 
So the, the first step before yeah. all the first steps? Before everything. The very first step. Now, like a guy who's never thought about buying land now, and now he's he hears this and he goes, I want to be a landowner someday. What does he need to do today to help him prepare for, let's say, a land purchase in 5, 10, 15 years? You know, I think the biggest thing is just, is just save. Um, again, any farm purchase, whether it's all timber or, or all tillable or whatever is going to require a down payment. Uh, and I think that's going to be the, the, the first step um, is just have a, have a plan, meet with your financial planner or advisor, let them know what your, your short or long-term goals are and really come up with a plan on, on how you can do that. Um, because I've, I've met with a lot of clients who've, you know, maybe kind of got in the cart before the horse a little bit. And, and, and we've started looking at farms and once we found a farm, they've realized, man, this is the perfect farm. I want this farm, but it was either out of their budget or is it what they thought was in their budget, but their lender required more of a down payment and they just didn't have cash on hand to be able yeah. to make it happen. All the other numbers worked except for they just didn't have the down payment. So I, I think that's one of the biggest things to plan for is that is definitely the first step is having that cash for the down payment. And sometimes you can find a farm and even if you save enough and the farm's got income on it, you can put enough of a down payment down where then the income off the farm covers the mortgage and taxes for the year. So it's almost like to do some easy math, you know, if you were to, and these are big numbers, but let's just say, well, I'll use smaller numbers. Let's say the farm was a hundred thousand dollars and you put 35,000 down or maybe 40,000 down. So 35 or 40% down that farm then could pay for itself. So really you bought a hundred thousand dollar asset for 35 or $40,000 from yeah. a use of cash standpoint, you know, you can, then you can multiply that and, in, in, you know, and even make that a larger scale, but you can buy a hundred thousand dollar asset for 35 or 40 grand if right. the income there on the right piece. So that's where it gets really exciting is, you know, then you get land appreciation. Let's say you hold that farm for four or five years, you fix it up, you clean it up, you create all those assets we just talked about, the photos, you enjoy the farm the whole time. Then five years down the road, you go to sell it, you paid that note down, you've got equity in the farm plus the appreciation, and now you've got that bigger down payment to go into a bigger farm and you just kind of keep rolling it. It takes time and it takes finding the right farms, but it can be done and guys are doing it every day. Right. Absolutely. Well, man, I tell you what, I appreciate you taking time to uh, come on the podcast and chat with us a little bit. Um, I, uh, congratulations on one hell of a season and uh, good luck this well, upcoming you, season, man. Awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And there you have it, another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Garrett for taking time out of his schedule to come on the podcast and chat about his season and a little bit about buying and selling property. Also, huge shout out to each and every one of you. As always, and I say this two to three times a week, man, thank you guys. Because if it wasn't for you, this wouldn't be happening. And please share. Let's spread the word about the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Go to Facebook, go to Instagram, follow us on social media, not only the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, but Land and Legacy, Transition Wild, DIY Sportsman, and Southern Ground Podcast. Whoa! I was talking with my hands there, got fired up. Anyway, so 
go like us on social media. All of the the uh, the podcasts that are on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Go to the sportsmansnation.com and at the bottom of the page, it allows you to enter your email address. Now, why is that important? Because not only are we going to be putting out a ton more content, but we're going to be doing giveaways here pretty soon, and we're going to be doing uh, discounts. So, like, I'll send you an email. It's going to have a discount of maybe either a partner or another uh, product on there, and it could save you some money. So, uh, sign up for that. It's going to be a lot of cool things coming via email now. And then, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Um... Go to iTunes or wherever you download our podcasts. Leave a review. And uh, you can give us five stars. That'd be uh, pretty awesome. Or you can give us one star. But I would prefer five stars because, I don't know, I have four fingers and I wish I had my, my fifth finger back sometimes. But I'm, I'm completely okay with having four now. <laughs> okay, this is the point of the podcast where I should probably shut off my microphone. So please, if you're going to be in the timber... Hanging, taking down, doing anything with a tree stand in a tree. Please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.